0: Welcome to Infinite Leaders Live, the podcast that shares real-life lessons from real-life people. As ever, we're incredibly fortunate to speak to people from all over the world in inspirational positions and roles in companies, organisations, education, establishments. So we're delighted that you've chosen to join us, to listen, to learn and share. As usual, I'm joined by my pal, Alan. How are you doing, Alan?
1: Yeah, good, Lewis. Thanks a lot there. And proud again to wear our Tsunami products. Tsunami is the number one choice for eco-sportswear and I'm really excited by today's guest. He was a hero of mine when I was growing up in Sheffield and he will certainly talk about the things you don't get taught at university or on any courses.
0: Yeah, we, we are excited and, and we love your feedback as ever. We'd really like your feedback for this one. Please get in touch. You can find us on Instagram, YouTube. Um, we're on Twitter as well and theinfinitelearners.com. Um, our tagline, Be Better Educators, Be Better Humans. And we hope today's episode will allow you to move towards that. Let's get stuck in, now.
1: Yeah, get your pens and paper ready, guys. There's going to be some gems of wisdom coming out of the show today. Now, Bob Booker is an ex-professional footballer who played for Brentford and Sheffield United before becoming assistant manager at Brighton and now works as a driving instructor. Bob worked hard, gave his all, played wherever he was asked without complaint. He wore every shirt apart from the goalkeepers and was rewarded by playing or coaching in all four divisions of the English Football League. Bob was a crucial part of teams, either as a player or a coach, and he celebrated six promotions but suffered three relegations. Perhaps most importantly, no one who has ever met Bob has a bad word to say about him. He's still revered at all three clubs he was associated with and remains a particular cult hero at my own club, Chef United. Ooh-ah, Bob Bukar, welcome to the show, and tell us about that chant that is the title of your book. Well,
2: first and foremost, guys, I'd like to say I've never been introduced like that before. That was an introduction <laughs> I've never had. That's unbelievable, Make me sound like the king.
1: <laughs> you are to us, Bob. <laughs> okay, uh,
2: no, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you guys, and uh, you know to speak to you and see you over there in, in sunnier climates. It's not too bad here today in Henfield, near Brighton. So yeah, very very pleased to chat to you. Yeah, I mean, like you say, going on to uh, where the U R ah, originally come from. I've just said cheerio to Mrs. U R. who took the dogs out for a nice stroll this morning. Uh, <laughs> it just sort of raised its head, and I think he was there, Alan. To be fair, at the Mansfield game. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I had, I had played about 10 games for the Blades coming up from Brentford and it was a particularly difficult time. Uh, I wasn't really performing. I was, you know, my years were clocking on. I had a dodgy knee. Uh, Harry still brought me up there. And it, it was a difficult first 10 games where the crowd must have thought, what have we got here? You know, a 32 year old crop who can't run around, can't pass, can't head, can't score. So it, you know, it was a frustrating time, but the manager stuck by me. You're talking about leaders. You know, he was a leader and he stuck by me and kept me going. I think as a player, as a professional, if you're a goal scorer or a goalkeeper or any player at some stage, you know, you're going through sort of some bad form, which I was, but I was, you know, my dad always told me like, you know, you keep going, son, you don't give up, you keep going. You know, even when times are bad, you come through the other side. And I think on that wet and rainy night at Mansfield, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, it just seemed to click. You know, I got up with the pace of the game. Uh, you know, I started winning headers. I started winning tackles. You could start hearing my name started to be sung in in certain quarters of that that crowd that we took. Uh, and that's where I first really heard the, the UR chant, you know, which uh, Eric Cantona tries to claim, but I'm having none of it. I'm having none of it. Uh, so it is officially my title and I'm very proud of it. And it's it stuck with me while I was at Sheffield United and it's stuck with me through my career now. You know, I saw my cards, who are, you know, I named my book, who are. It's just something that, you know, my friends call me, who are. It's, it's just weird, really. So uh, I'm very proud of it. And it's I'm glad that it's just, you know, it's, it stayed the course. So that, but it all started on that night, as you said, you know, it, it just changed for me that night. Uh, things got better uh and i, I started to, to push on in that in that team you know as a regular player and, and kept going and fair play to the manager for keeping me in you know i did go and speak to him a few times and said harry this is not this is not working you know uh not it's not i'm not doing what i should be doing what you're asking and he said no you will do you you know because uh i was used to playing a, a slightly different type of football at brentford under steve Perryman, as you can imagine uh and with harry's uh, for fast and forward play, it was a completely different concept for me. So it took a while for me to get up to get up to speed, but I got there in the end.
0: Good man, and, and ten games in for the crowd to be singing your name is is some claim to fame. And, and I know that it was three years at Bramall Lane. I think you had, it and the impact that you made with the fans was massive. You know, and, and that song is still renowned. It's known Bob Booker as a as a a name that you can speak to any blade about, and they'll know exactly who that person is that they're talking about now. Tell, tell us how you made that impact in that three years. Where, how did you move up to Sheffield? How did that come about? And, and, and how did you have that kind of attitude to really go on at 32 years old and, and be such a, a hero at a, a club like Sheffield United?
2: Well, like you said, it was a, it was a bit of a, an impact in, in three years, what had happened. You know, normally, I mean, I was at Brentford for over 10 years as a player. Uh, I did have a couple of songs down there, but they weren't quite so uh, prominent as they are. Uh, <laughs> But uh I mean I was I was just sort of thinking about retiring, I've got to be honest. Uh, I'd had a bad knee knee operation in 1986. It's taken its toll. I was coming to the end. I wasn't really getting in the team. Uh, I played against Sheffield United sort of about three weeks before I finally come up. And I knew I knew Dave Bassett and I knew Derek French because we both played for the same the same team, a uh, local team called Bedman Social, where where Vinny played in the in the reserves and I was in the first team because Vinny was a little bit younger than me, Vinnie Jones. But I, I played in that game and I remember the Blades bringing down at least three and a half four thousand 4,000 supporters because he was flying high at the top of the old division. And uh, I, traveled, I I got taken off in that game. I was completely out of it. I think it was Simon Webster and, well, you know, unfortunately the, the lad I replaced, Simon Webster and Mark Todd sent midfield. And I played sent midfield and got absolutely troused. You know, they ran, you know, they killed me. They, I was nowhere near we, we couldn't keep up with the team, you know, the way that Sheffield were playing and how we had them going. So I travelled home with Derek French that night. We both lived in Watford. And I said to him, blimey, you know, what a team you got there. Dean and Agana, You had Bryson and Roberts. You know, you had a solid back four floor with Chrissy Wilder, Pikey, Stancliffe. It was uh, 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 it a formidable team. It really was powerful. He said, yeah, he's really got them going. And that was it. So I had the weekend at home and then the following week on a Sunday morning, Derek French rung me and said, Harry would like to see you, have a chat with you. And I said, What about? Is he, you know, do you want me to do some scouting or something? <laughs> what's, what's he after? He said, No, he's thinking of bringing you up, you know, to, to play. And I said, What? On loan or whatever? He said, We just want to have a chat with you. Well, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, really, because uh, I was off the radar, you know, I was about to pack up. So I went and saw Steve Perman. Uh, that morning on a Monday and said, uh, Dave Bassett's uh, interested in having a chat with me. Would you mind if I, I I go up and have a chat with him? And he said, no, f- you know, feel free, Bob. You, you know, you're not going to lose nothing. You're not in my plans. You know, you're, you're 32. You're, I'm, I'm looking for to bring other players in. But he was quite honest about it. So me and my dad jumped in. We uh, managed to put a petrol in my little fiesta. Uh, and we jumped on the M1 and turned up at Bramble Lane on a, on a Wednesday morning to see Harry. Uh, and just driving to that car park, as you well know, you know, it was, it was, you know, no disrespect to Brentford. It was a great football club, but driving in there, it's, you know, the old butterflies are going a little bit, and I wasn't really expecting what what was coming, really. Uh, and then I got to reception, and you might have heard of Mick Rooker. God bless him, he's retired now. he came and met me and took me, through the, took, took me through the offices, and I could see all these people looking at me thinking, who the bloody hell's that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Harry, Harry called me in. So I went into his office. and uh, my dad waited outside and uh, just had a chat with him. He had his legs up on the table and we, we spoke about football and he was looking to replace Simon Webster, broke his leg at, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and I said, Harry, I've you know I've, I've, I've already played, you know, my knees are struggling. He said, Well, don't worry about your knee, we'll get your knee sorted. French sort you out, we'll get you some injections and <laughs> you can have a one-to-one, you can have a one-to-one physio, you know, any." I said, OK, can we dad come and have a chat? So, my dad come in and have a chat, and we sat there. Uh, and I, at that time, I was on a, probably about £250 a week, which you probably wouldn't believe, £300 a week at Brentford. And Harry read out the contract, and it was almost trebling my wages, and they was offering me, you know, sort of a signing-on fee, which I'd never had. Uh, they said they'd sort me out with my digs, you know, and get me a, get me a sponsored car, and it was just mind-blowing, really, from where I'd, from where I'd been. So I said, can I can I have a chat with my dad about this outside? Because I didn't have an agent then, you know. I mean, you didn't need an agent, you know, if you couldn't decide what you wanted to get out of a football club or what you wanted to accept. I mean, I think I'd already made my mind up once he read the contract out, to be honest with you. Uh, he said, yeah, yeah, go and have a chat. But there's no more money, no more money. I said, no, I just want to have a chat with my dad. I can't get my head around it, you know. One minute I'm just about to retire and finish, and now I'm being offered a contract at Sheffield United. So we, we walked along the tunnel, me and my dad, and we walked down the steps, and we saw the blade sign, and it's making the back of my neck go up now, the lads, to be fair, <laughs> it's, it's giving me a bit of a shiver, a bit of a lump in my throat, and we walked out onto the hollow turf, we looked at the cop, and we just stood there in silence, me and my dad, and then it was a bit like fools and horses, I've got to be honest, we looked at each other, and my dad sort of started to well up, and I started to well up, and we just had a cuddle in a moment, and... Uh, he said, listen, son, you've been in the lower leagues all your life, 10, 11, 12 years. You know, go and sign that contract and go for it. So we went back into the office. Uh, he said, I said, where's the pen, Harry? He said, brilliant. So I signed the contract. I hadn't even told my wife what I'd done. My first wife, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I liked it I liked it so much, I thought I'd have another go at it. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we drove back. we drove back to Watford. Rung my wife on the way and said, I'm, I'm moving, you know, going to go and play for Sheffield United. Got some bits together, came back up on the Thursday, played in the reserves Thursday night and then made my debut on the Saturday against Bristol City. So yeah, it was a bit of a whirlwind, whirlwind sort of, you know, education really on signing because I've been at Brentford all my life since 1979. So and the next minute, I'm at this massive football club uh, and ready, ready, to, ready for the journey, really.
1: I love that, Bob. Love it. Lump in your throat, lump in mine too. Unbelievable. Yeah,
2: yeah. It really was. Al. It was, you know, it's what it's what dreams are made of, really. You know, when you when you don't expect something like that coming, and you know, so it wasn't. It, not I say it wasn't a lot of pressure. There was quite a bit of pressure. It was a bit. It was a strange decision, but it's one those you just tend to go for it, don't you? And if you don't, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And fortunately for me, it did work out. I mean, it took it took a bit of time, but you know, we got there in the end.
1: It's it's those seminal moments, Bob, and lots of our guests on this podcast talk about those seminal moments in your in your life that you go one way or the other, and, and that's clearly one of them for you. I'm gonna take you back to that that Tuesday night at Mansfield and I remember finishing school and we piled into the back of a transit van as you would do in them days. I got I don't know, some guy I don't even know was driving, my dad's in front, I'm in back with all lads from school, there's all sorts going in, in the back of the van. <laughs> It, it, smoke, you couldn't even see for smoke, let's just say. And we get down there and then all the dads are on it at, at, at the pub. And, and we go to that night and it's got to be one of the coldest nights I've ever watched football at. It was, rain, yeah. it was sleet, it was rain, it was snow, it was brutal. And and, and that was another seminal moment, like you say, in, in your Chef United career, because that's when you became alive and, and as a Blade and as a fan. That's when we saw you. That's when we're like, oh, wow, he's one of us. And that's when the mm-hmm. chance started. So Just to link, how important is that sense of belonging, Bob, where you feel really part of something special?
2: Well, every player, you know, every player likes that. I mean, I, it happened to me twice. You know, when I went to Brentford, I was inexperienced. I'd just signed from a non-league team, you know, sort of two men and a dog watching to playing, you know, playing straight into, into Division Three. So it was a massive... A massive step up for me and I really struggled at Brentford it was it was it was just like deja vu coming to Sheffield you know I was going from Brentford to Sheffield and making that big step as well not as in division so much but as in football status and football football ground and, and stadium so it was a massive step up and uh, it it does affect you uh, you know when you your parents are sitting in the in the crowd and you know you, you've got all that abuse going around you and know, I used to you know, I used to drive home in the car and listen to praising and Grumble. And I don't know why I did, but you know, people were actually saying, you know, you know, the book is useless. What's he doing? He can't run. He can't. He can't get around the pitch. He's too old. You know, and you think, I think you just you either you either fall by the wayside or you you grab it and you grit your teeth. And I've I've never been the world's and I never would have been the world's greatest footballer. I wasn't a Tony Curry. I wasn't a Brian Dean. I wasn't a Tony Garner. And I think that's where. I, instantly after that Mansfield game, I got the connection from the crowd because I think they realised that when they knew a little bit about me, I was a working class guy. I worked in a factory from eight in the morning till half past five at night. I didn't I didn't have it on a plate. I didn't come through the apprenticeship scheme and everything done for me. I worked my bollocks off uh, in a factory uh, and just enjoying Saturday football. And then the chance came along. And like I said to you earlier, you know, about you guys being over there, when the chance comes, you have to take it and you know, I, I recognise that the, the general Sheffield United supporter, you know, he works his bollocks off all week, whatever he does, whether he's a bus driver, whether he's in an office, whatever he's doing, whether he's a builder, come Friday night, he has a few beers, down the lane on a Saturday, watch the game, let off steam, you know, Sunday morning, get up, have a game of football Sunday morning for the Bradway, go down a pub, go down to the local social club Sunday afternoon, have your Sunday dinner, fall asleep, back to work Monday. And that's what I do. Well, that's what, that's what I did. You that, just described my, my dad's life. What <laughs> <laughs> about yours, Lewis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can relate to that. And I think the modern day football now wouldn't have a clue what some people do for a job and, and how it affects them. Because it's just put on a plate for them, you know. You, everything's there, done for you. You know, you don't have to want, you don't have to want for anything. You're fed, you're watered, you travelled, you travelled the world, you're looked after. And it's a million miles away to what it was when we was in the game. That's why I think when you speak, like you guys speak to a lot of ex players from that era, they probably speak pretty similar to me because that's what we did, that's how it was. Uh, and we're, I think we're very proud of being in that era as a professional footballer through the 70s and 80s and 90s. Yeah,
0: we, we, we spoke to Baz Rathbone a couple of months ago. <laughs> Um, used to play at Blackburn and he, and he talked about the dressing rooms being tough and such and he talked about feeling a real imposter syndrome that, that like you've just described there where you're like hang on a minute how am I at Sheffield United having come from Brentford being on the verge of retirement did you have a little bit of self-doubt as you came up to Bramall Lane and what did you do to try and, to try and ease that what did you do to try and make yourself feel a little bit more like you you were at a place where you could make some progress and you did deserve to be there and you had you know, worked your socks off to
2: get there Mm. well I shit myself my first going going into that going into that dressing room you know I I was a little bit lucky again like you say right? I I knew a few of the players from from down south I knew you know well I knew Stancliffe because I played against him quite a bit I knew Francis Joseph I knew Simon Tracy from Wimbledon uh, and and a a couple I knew Wally Downs so I had a little bit of insight to to some of the lads there and Frenchie was there so I didn't feel too too far out of it going into that dressing room and when I walked in and you know a lot of them turned around and and said oh bloody hell look what's he doing here and I think it was Paul Stanklin he said what are you doing he said you're older than me and I came <laughs> back with yeah but I can score more goals than you Stan and that sort of broke that sort of broke the ice a little bit like you know with the rest of the lads but they was, re- they was really good uh, and my first morning you're always a little bit wary you know what it's going to be the first morning's training and and to be fair to Chrisy Wilder, he, he, he sort of tagged to me straight away. He was great, Chris. he come up and said, listen, you know, I'm driving up to the training ground. Would you like to jump in the car with us? And so it was me him, and, and Todd, he jumped in Chrissy's car and, and off we went to the, my first training session. Uh, and I couldn't trap a bag of cement that morning. I was so nervous. I mean, I I shouldn't have been. I played over 350 games. I think you'd just drop into it, but I suppose it's the same as going for any new job. You know, you're a little bit apprehensive. But they made me great, you know, and it, it was a very tough dressing room, you, you know. You know what I mean by that. There was a lot of banter. There was a lot of fierce banter. And if you can't take that, you got no chance. And it was it was a very volatile dressing room, full of characters, you know. And I think Harry, I think Harry Bassett done a masterclass by mixing the southerners with the northerners. And you had you know Wardy, Dame Whitehouse, Billy Whitehurst, Chrissy Wilder, Dane, uh, Dame Mitch Ward, and then you had Trace Gannon, myself. You know, so it was, it was a, we had that banter, you know, that, that North versus South. I mean, most Friday mornings was North versus South, five aside, which, you, which you would never get today. And, you know, Jeff Taylor blow the whistle seven minutes each way and we'd all kick three bags of shit out of each other. Uh, and that was on, that was on a Friday morning. If you got in good, you didn't play. So, but that's what we did in them days, you know, that's, that's how it was. I mean, you wouldn't have any contact on a Friday morning now in the Premier League, would you? Uh, but that was us, you know, that's what. We, that's the way we, we, we played hard and we worked hard. So fantastic crowd and fantastic group of players. And they made it very, very, not easy for me, but they, they made me very, very welcome. And and as did, you know, as did all the staff, Mick Rooker particularly, because he took me around when I was living up there and I wasn't at home. He, he took me around the pubs and the clubs. Well, not drinking, obviously, too much, you know, not after a Wednesday, but uh, he took me around the pubs and clubs and the shops and I did signing sessions. So he, he got my face around, really, you know. And, Took me to places like that, you know, GT sports and do fo- little photo sessions, which I find quite quite not easy. But I think it's part of a, a professional footballer's job, you know, sign some autographs and bits and pieces. So that really helped as well. So Mick Rucker was great for me because he really got me around the city uh, and, and put my face about and looked after me.
0: You mentioned there, Bob, about the banter. Tell, tell us a bit more about the sort of dressing room atmosphere and how, how bad it was, but also maybe how good it was as well. Because there's a fine line, isn't there, like you've already alluded to. You know, it was fierce, it was cutthroat, but it was done in a
2: supportive way. Would,
0: would that be right? And, and how how fierce did it get and how supportive was it for you?
2: Well, like I said, if you, I mean, some of the abuse, you know, you, they could they could be slaughtering your mum for or your sister. You know, many of the players said they wanted to shag my sister. or well, they had shag my sister, uh, oh. which that can really affect some people, do you know what I mean? In my opinion, good luck Good good luck to them. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it can be, it can, I mean, you know, things they used to shut the apprentices in the skips and, and shut the lid like they'd be stuck in there for an hour, you know, because they hadn't cleaned their boots or, you know, it, all sorts could happen. You know, we was up at the training ground one one winter when it was snowing and we had a snowball fight and the North versus the South and I got strip bollock naked in the snow they left, they left me with my slit and a pair, pair of boots and I had to make my way back to the training ground because they took on my training kit. You know, it's <laughs> ruthless. So, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it, it, it was good. You know, I, 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 I think Harry's done brilliant there because that's, to me, that's what a dressing room should be like, you know.
1: You, you talk about Harry there really fondly, Bob, and, and we all got great memories of, of Harry Bassett. To those that don't know who he is, he's yeah. the guy that instigated the crazy gang and then came up to Sheffield. And one of the things he did was he brought his, his Southerners with him and he brought his entire team up north, which had probably not been done much before. I'm, I'm interested, Bob, to find out there is what, why what was so good about Harry in terms of his man management, as it from a leadership perspective?
2: Well, we called him Harry the Bastard. <laughs> uh, well, we did, because a lot of, you know... You could have a row with him in the dressing room about something tactical or whatever, but he was, he was still going to have a pint with you afterwards down the social club. I mean, one of my you talk about man management. One of my, one of my memories uh, was when I hadn't been home for about six weeks or six to eight weeks, uh, and we got beat at home. I can't remember if it was against you might know you Stato's over there. We got <laughs> beat one 0 at home. We was sort of going going for promotion. We got beat one nil and we was absolutely appalling. And he came and he absolutely slaughtered us. I'd already arranged to go home to a family, to a family party and I'd been home for six weeks. So I'm thinking as I'm coming off the pitch, we're going to get slaughtered now and I'm going to be in in the morning. Uh, and Harry, Harry absolutely ripped us to pieces. You know, you didn't run, Bob. You didn't win your headers. You were shit. Trace, you were sloppy. You know, absolutely killed us right, right through the team. So he said, you didn't work today. Uh, so you're going to come in the morning at eight o'clock and you're going to run around the pitch for 45 minutes, because the second 45 minutes was absolutely diabolical. And I'm thinking, I've got to ring home and say, so I'm not coming home. i am not been home for eight weeks. Well, in that moment when I was in the shower, Dave Bassett came up to me in the shower and tapped me on the shoulder and said, uh, big fella, get yourself off home. You haven't been home for eight weeks. And I looked at him, I said, Harry, if the lads are in running in the morning, I'm, I'm going to be in running with them. But that moment that he remembered that I was meant to be going home and then realising that he'd said coming in the morning and then come and saw him in the shower. Just little things like that. You think, yeah, I, I'll, I'll do anything for this fella. And I would have done, you know, I, was, I still speak to Harry on a regular basis. And I just, I just loved him the bits. He just, he'd done everything for me. And he was my mentor. Uh, they, the lads used to call me son of, son of Dave because they thought yeah. I was up his arse all the time. But uh, <laughs> no, he, he, just, he just looked after me. He, you know, he made me feel 10 feet tall. And I would have run for a brick wall for him, and hopefully I did.
1: But I, he there, he obviously looked after you, and he knew what you needed, which is a real sign of a good leader. Where he's got his arm around one people, he might be having a go at another one. He, might, he does just knows what triggers to pull. What other yeah. what other examples of Dave's man management could you pull out from there? From for maybe other players, how did he treat them, and how did that work? Well, you're
2: you're spot on there because some players. You know, some players can't take a bollocking. You know, yeah. it, it doesn't it? it affects them. You know, Jop Jop Bryson. You know, Jop Jop Bryson for me was so underrated. He had everything. You know, he 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 was he was he was fit. He could cross. He could score. He could head. He was a manager's dream, really, for a wide player. But Harry always used to slaughter him, and and it used to affect Jop physically. Looking at his face, he didn't. He could, you know, he really sort of brought him down. So that's where we come in as players and we put our arm around Jock Well, Jeff Taylor would go and see Jock. And, and at the end of the day, you know, two hours later, Harry would come up to Jock in the, in the social club and, and buy him a beer and, and, and it's all done, you know, just so some players can take a pat on the back. Some, some need a bollocking, you know, yeah. you, you know, you get into Dino now again, if Dino was having a bit of a, an off day, which wasn't very often, he used to, he used to get into him and, and Dino looked like he was going to cry sometimes. You know, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, you're right. It's the man management, you know. And I, I took a lot of that when I went into my coaching. You know, some players need a bollocking. Some you can't. You just got to ease up a little bit and, and and deal with every every person in a different way or every player in a different way.
0: How do you get that right, Bob? How do you start to to understand that?
2: I think a lot of it comes naturally. You know, as being a judge of a on who you're like you guys, who you're teaching or who you're coaching, knowing what you can tell them to do, knowing what you think they'll be able to do and get them to do it you know it doesn't always happen Uh, you can have you know it's like Marino going to Man United you can have the best players in the world but if you can't put them into a shape whatever it is 4-4-2 get them to do what you're asking them to do you've got no chance the manager's got no chance and Harry had that he had that you know we played in a certain way we all knew our jobs and if we changed the plan he let us know about it and we didn't change the plan but sometimes if it did happen you was on the back end of, of a Dave Bassett rollicking like, you know. So okay. I remember I remember when we used to do a bit of pattern of play and I'd go and get the ball off or try and get the ball off Paul Stangliff or one of the back four players. And if they actually gave it to me, Harry would stop the game and get me down and do 30 press-ups. What you what are you going to get the ball off them for? They're going to knock it up to Dean and the Garner. I want you up the other end getting the knockdown. So I'm going up and down like a stripper's knickers, which I wasn't used to. <laughs> you know? so i was used to going to get it off the full back turning trying to look like a bit of a player throwing a few shapes you know giving it large and that wasn't what we was about we was getting it forward you know you get up and down win the knockdowns get it wide to roberts get it wide to bryson get it to mitch ward they're gonna cross it if dean and garner don't score i'll, sl- I'll slaughter them so mm-hmm. we all had a job to do and nobody if you system wasn't going to work and uh well, Quick was in the pudding,
1: wasn't it? Yeah. What what I like there, Bob, just coming back to is where Harry would slaughter someone. There's there's a support network amongst Jeff, the assistant manager, and then you guys in the changing room. So it, it's a network of leaders, not just one. Absolutely. How how important is that in any organisation to have a network of leaders rather than just one person driving
2: Oh, I think you're spot on there, uh, Alan. I think we had bundles of leaders, you know, that we didn't have many captains there in my time. Stan was captain when I, when I turned up, I was lucky enough to, to captain us at, at Leicester for two or three games when Stan was injured, but you had so many other captains, even like, you know, Brian Dean would pull your side. He was so calming when he spoke to you about your game. And so was Tony Agana. you know, uh, when when came, you know, Vinny was quite insecure. People think, oh, Vinny Jones is a big hard man. But I used to room with Vinny and, tra- and and travel with him. And he was so insecure about his performances. You know, he'd sit and say, Bob, how do you think i have done? Do you think i have done okay? Do you think Harry would be pleased with me? Now you wouldn't expect that from Vinny Jones. You'd think he's just the big I am. And you know, but so everybody everybody was there to just shift shift the load, like you say, you know. Uh Chrissy wilder was 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 great to talk to about football, you know, they all had their their little bits and pieces and, and some of them were just absolutely like Carl Bradshaw you just know that he would put a smile on your face uh, the Northern lads, the Northern lads used to really make me laugh you know they just they were great in their banter it, it's a slightly different banter to what it is down south uh, and I, re- I really like that and so you're right it, it's not just about the captain or the assistant manager it, 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 was, a, it was a great even down to Frenchy if he was injured you know to have Frenchy in the dressing room with you day by day and looking after you he was brilliant. He was a great character. So we had, we had bundles of characters in, the, in that era. Absolutely fantastic.
0: Bob, oh, did, uh, did Harry Bassett ever make it clear what his sort of negotiables were in terms of him saying, listen, I expect X, Y and Z? And did everybody buy into that and just follow that? Or was that something that just sort of happened because of the characters and the strong leaders that you had in the changing room at the time?
2: No, he had a, he had a plan. Uh, in the in the system we were we were playing, you know, the long ball game. You know, a ball from the back. If you could put the ball as a fullback or centre half into the opposition's half, in between the eighteen yard box and the touchline line, yeah. you would, he would call that a reacher. You know, we loved the channel ball, didn't it? Oh, <laughs> channel ball. And if if it went out for goal kick, so be it. If it stayed on the pitch, and they got there first, we was encouraged not to foul the back four of the opposition. Let them give us a throw-in. Let them give us a corner, because for every ten corners that you have in a game, you are owed one goal. Statistically, that was his. That was his. You know, he had it all worked out. How many forward balls? How many forward balls in the last third? You're going to get a cross. How many crosses? You're going to get a goal. So it wasn't just a case of lumping it forward. It it was a real, it was a real system that every player bought into. Uh, And once you see it working as a player, and you start winning games same as winning and losing, it becomes a habit. And to get rewards out of it, you know, we knew that we had wingers that were going to cross the ball. And if someone was about to cross the ball and check back and went in midfield, Harry would go absolutely ballistic. Why did you do that? Why didn't you cross it? We've got Brian Dean and Tony Garn in the middle of the park in the 18-yard box. They want service. You see it in every premiership game now, do not you know? They get down to the box, they turn out, they go back to midfield, back to the back four. It drives me mad. I don't, you know. To be fair, to be honest with you, I hardly watch any football now because it's so boring. <laughs> but no, it's really, there's no. There's, it's, it's a really interesting. No on, there's no shots on goal, is there? No it's a really interesting goal, point, no, Bob, because
0: we, Alan and I both coach football. We've both been involved in football for years, and and um, you know, when I was at school, it was very much being coached in a way of getting the ball to the fullback and hit the channel, exactly what you've just described, exactly what you've just described, and despite what you had in your team, that was the way you play. And I think football's evolved a lot, hasn't it? And it's almost now gone to the other end degree where regardless of what talent you might have or not have in your team, you're going to play out from the back and you're going to play in a way where you try and actually play. Now, as a central midfielder for you, you've already alluded to the fact that you do want to receive the ball on the turn. You do want to look for options. How did you fit into that system where essentially you were just doing doggies? You were doing doggies, 30, 40-meter doggies on the hope that you might pick up something, a bit of scraps, and then off we go. How did that yeah. fit with a player like you that really, as you've already mentioned, didn't really fit with how you wanted to play in wanting to receive and play out from the back of it?
2: Well, that's that's where them first 10, first ten games became a problem because, one, I wasn't fit enough uh, to do that job, what we wanted box to box. Uh, you know, most Tuesdays and Wednesdays, we did them types of run, 18-yard box to 18-yard box, especially in the midfield players. Toddy could do it. You know, John Gannon could do it, uh, and I I had to get up to speed to e- to execute that what Harry wanted, which was which was hard for me. You know, not one because of my knee, and two I was thirty two years old. But what a lot of people don't know is, after training, Derek French would spend hours and hours with me uh, on a one to one basis. You know, strengthening me up, working my knee, going in the gym in the afternoons, not going home or playing golf or going to sleep. You know, so there was a lot of hours put in, as well as the training as well to get up to that. For that style of football, uh, and you had to be fit to do it. I mean, we was bloody fit. I'll give you that. You know, we we did put some hours in and and and, and mileage. Uh, so, like you say, you you had to be fit to play that system. So, until I got up to there and and saw what was required, I found it very very difficult. To be honest well, with you,
0: you talked there about doing that bit of work away from the lights. You know, putting in the graft and the effort where no one sees after training. How important was that, and and how 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 um, I think what I'm trying to get at is is how underrated is that idea of you know putting in that extra work to get the reward because you're in a dressing room there with a lot of big characters, you don't want to mm. be the receiving end of some harsh banter, I imagine, around the fact you haven't played particularly well. So you've got your own personal pride to think about. But what drives mm. you to put in those hours that other players maybe aren't putting in?
2: I think it's either in you or it's not in you, innit? It's uh, I've I've always I've always been a grafter uh, whatever I've done I've always been organized I've always been disciplined I think discipline uh, my dad installed into me you know when I went into the furniture factory and I was apprentice under six or seven blokes and you know, I was organized I was disciplined I was always on time I just had I just had a focus really uh, and I've always been like that uh, and I think that that when I got into difficult situations I always pull on that. I always just think think what would my dad say now? He'd say, "Pull your sleeves up, get on with it, get a smile in your face. Don't let people see you down. You'll come through the other side." Uh, and I've always I've always gone with that, and he's always been right. God bless him. If you're looking up there now, hopefully feeling very proud of what's what happened.
1: You've obviously got some real core values there, Bob of of graft, punctual, hard work, proper working class values. When, when you went into coaching, then. Were those values you took with you, and you expected them of other players? And what if players didn't match up to your values that you have? What did you do?
2: That's a great question. And I, when I finally got into the coaching side of it, and I was the I was the youth team manager at Brentford for six years to learn my trade, uh, and I just took a lot of stuff, what I'd picked up off of Harry, off of Jeff Taylor. Uh, some of the managers that I've played under as a player at Brentford. I I just took a collection of it, really, but I still like to put my own mark in it. And them values that I told you about, you know, if I had 15 apprentices apprentices, on their first morning, which did happen when they first left school and started their apprenticeship, and I told them to be in at 8 o'clock, and they was all in except one of them, and I would wait on the corner of the dressing room, and he'd come bowling down the corridor with his his bag over his shoulder on his first day, sort of a bit of a swagger, aren't I? You know, I'm apprentice footballer now, aren't I? And when he got to me, he said, I said, where have you been? He, he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you're late. He said, well, it's only two minutes past eight. I said, yeah, you're late. So uh, he said, oh, sorry, mate. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not your mate. I'm your gaffer. I said, you, you, you turn yourself around. You go home and tell your mum and dad you've just wasted your first day's apprenticeship. He went, what? I said, you go home and tell your mum and dad you've wasted your first day's apprenticeship. He was never late again. You know, so cool,
1: maybe,
2: yeah, little just little things like that, you know, when the lads used to clean up the clean up the dressing rooms and I'd already I'd already hidden the tin can behind the toilet to see if they'd find it, because anyone can clean the middle, middle middle of a floor. Corners and edges was my motto, and they used to go mad. I used to call the head apprentice and say, You ready to go, lads? He said, Yes, Gaffer. I said, Okay, I'll have a quick check around and I'd go and find a tin can and just throw it in the middle of the dressing room and walk out and come and see me when you're finished. Just a bit of discipline, really, you know, and the apprentices don't know they're they're born these days. They don't have to clean the boots. I'm not saying it's right, but it it, it worked. You know, if you look, if you talk to most old pros, that's how we did. You know, I respected, even though I wasn't an apprentice, I respected the pros that were been there longer than me. I'd come from non-league, but I still respected them, even though I was a fully grown adult. I still respected them for what they'd done and what they achieved. You know, I didn't have to like them, but I respected them. And I just I just think a lot of that's gone out the game these days. So uh, all the morals I've talked about that's stood me in good stead for my coaching career, through the youth team, the man management of Harry when I work with the pros. So you know it's just been a steady, a steady growth of their morals from the from the kids through to the reserves, through to the first team, through to assistant manager. So just took it along with me really, and I think you could you can be you can be really. You know, you can say what you think and uh, to players and you know what you've got to say to them. But at the end of the day, they might not like to hear it. But I think, I don't think there's many players that wouldn't turn around and say, I respected Bob Booker for what he did and what he did for me. But I'd like to think that anyway.
0: Yeah. I love that, corners and edges. That's nice. Anyone can clean the middle of a floor. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a bit about Vinnie Jones, <laughs> Bob. Um Vinny, Vinny was a big character. You said that you, you played with him in non-league, he was in the reserves and you were in the first team and then he followed you up to Bramall Lane as well, didn't he? Tell us a little bit about Vinny Jones.
2: Well, Vinny, we both sort of lived... Vinny lived in Bedman, I lived just on the outskirts, so we both played for Bedman Social, which was just a local satby team, you know, with a rope round, a pitch and two men and a dog watching. Uh, and he always had a bit of batting because, he, you know, he had a bit of a... a, a quite a tough childhood, uh, parent-wise, uh, and gangs and things like that. You know, he was he was on the on the wrong side of the wrong people at some stage. I went to Brentford and he went to Wildstone and then he finally went off to Wimbledon with Harry for the crazy gang. Uh, and then, obviously, we pitched up again at, uh, at Bramall Lane. But along the way, obviously, he was at Leeds United, so we had some tussles there when we played each other uh, at Bramall Lane and, and Ellen Road. Uh, it, like I so say, he was a very secure lad uh, but a great, you know, I remember his, his first early time at, at Bramall Lane. I, I was, when I first came out there, one of the people I did live with was a, a builder called Keith Palmer. I was start, stopping at my, Martin Pike's house in Diggs, and I came down in the morning and he was building his fireplace and uh, he said, oh, you're Bob Booker, you've just signed for, for, for uh, Sheffield United. I thought, blind, I've been recognised. I've only, I've only been here five minutes. Someone's recognised me. <laughs> this is a change. And then I got really friendly with his family and he, I stayed up there a lot and he broke his leg on the building site. And uh, straight away, Vinny was one of the ones that would organise. He organised a lot like of karaoke down at the social club uh, to raise money for Keith Palmer because he wasn't earning for his family. And a lot of them things, people don't see that side of Vinny Jones. You know, he's uh, he, he's, a, he's a good lad. He's a, he's a good dad. I've got a lot of time for him, still speak to him. Uh, on the phone now and again, he lives quite close to me now and very sad once, you know, he lost Tanya, which was really, really sad, you know, uh, on that, that time. So, yeah, got a lot of time for Vinny and I'm really proud of what he's achieved and really pleased for him and, you know, long may it continue.
1: That, that's lovely. That, it, it, it just goes to show that that sense of belonging again that we've talked about and we've got a phrase, belonging through bonding Tell us a bit about some of those legendary bonding sessions that you'll have had, which do have a huge impact on results, don't they? Well,
2: I wouldn't have exactly call it bonding, I'd call it getting <laughs> absolute pissed, bladdered. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like you say, we pl- we we worked hard, but we played hard. Uh, You know, I think that group of players. I'm not sure if it happens too much these days, because players are shipped in and and coaches and shipped out again, and off they go in their cars. Where, you know, I would say at least 80% of the team, not even 100%. We would we would all socialise together after game in the, you know, might be for an hour, but we was all there. Or, you know, a lot of a lot of the wives used to come down, sort of in midweek, and and have, have lunch with the players and all mixed together so we really like you say we really got that bonding of that real group it wasn't just the players it was the wives it was the kids you know it was it was mixing with the staff and things like that so it 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 was a massive bond and it was like i like you know getting on getting on the train and going on the journey if you want to jump on it it's going to be great if you if you don't if you want to get off and stop at the station see you later but we was on a we was on a roll and uh it, it was just a great it was a great time to be in a great era and Some lovely people, you know, even down through the staff and just, it was a real, it was a real, well, that was a big football club. I think everybody, I mean, it's a big football club now, but it was a big football club then. Everybody was really, everybody knew everybody, you know, they probably don't know. There's so many, so many staff in a football club now. I mean, when I went to Brighton, we had four members of staff. We had the secretary, uh, we had about, I think it was three or four. You know, you go through Brighton at the Emmys now. There's 95 people on the office floor. It's that's just yeah. It's just the way it's gone. It's 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 blown up out of all proportion. So, yeah, some great bonding sessions. And when we, you know, when we went out and Harry sort of took us out, and you know, we could let our air down, and you know, uh, it used to get a little bit out of hand, but nothing that would hit the papers. You know, I mean, we had a we had a few examples on the plane going over to Marbella where we got chucked off the plane and. When you look at it these days, it seems quite quite bad. But it was it was a bit of banter, really. It wasn't we wasn't doing anything dangerous, or it you, it's one of those isn't it, you could get away with. It then, whereas now you'd be you'd be locked up, wouldn't you? Come oh, on, so, Bob. There's a story there, isn't there? Tell us a story. You know, heard the one about the on the jetliner. Go on. Um, what happened on the jetliner? Well, we got we got promoted, and uh, Harry, in his wisdom, decided that we would go in two groups. So there was me and Stan, and Chrissy Wilder, Mitch Ward, Bradders, Billy Whitehurst, David Barnes, uh, and Frenchie and me, Frenchie and Stan were meant to be the the fathers of the trip. Like you know, look after that lot. And Harry was coming out with Derek Dooley and all the all the also runs the other lads. So we get to the we get to the airport about six bells in the morning. We're on it in the bar, and it's flowing. It's good. We're, you know, we've been promoted. It's a great feeling. And then the, we get called up for the flight. So we, we, we get onto the plane, and I think, we're in the, I think we're in about the first six rows, all of us. So me, me and Frenchie get to the, the back row, and the lads are getting on, a bit leery, getting the seats, the plane wants to get going. And they had one of these big you know, big screens that they watched the telly on in front of it. And, and Billy, White, Billy Whitehurst and, and David Barnes, deciding their wisdom, they got out a marker, and David Barnes and Billy started to take off Dave Bassett. Get the fucking ball here. Get it in the corners. You know, drawing all, drawing all these arrows on the screen. Yeah, hit the fucking corners. Yeah, second ball, second ball. Dino, get it in the box, get it in the box. And we're all laughing our heads off. And even the, even the punters on the plane were laughing, to be fair, because they knew that we were Sheffield United. And all of a sudden, I've got a tap on the shoulder. And this bloke says to me, he says, I work for British Airways. He said, them screens are worth 10 grand. And I said Frenchie, Frenchie, I think we've got a problem here. So the air air, air stewardess asked Billy to wipe it off. Of course, he went to wipe it, but it was a permanent marker. It was a permanent marker on this spring with all these arrows and crosses. So Billy then said, give me a scowl and a bit of of a jiff, I'll get it off. So he's trying to rub it, it's getting worse and worse and worse. So I can see the stewardess getting on the phone, and I'm thinking, she's ringing the old Billy, we've got a problem. All of a sudden, the police come up the steps. (laughs) (laughs) Frenchie had a sombrero on and I had a paper. And he said, kick your head down, son. So I put the paper up and slid down in my chair. (laughs) Frenchie pulled the sombrero down. And they they decided to say, "Oh, you know, they picked out about three rows. And I think Whitehurst went, Barnsley went, Chrissy Wilder went, Mitch Ward, Bradders, I think. And they all got carted off the plane. And because they wanted, you know, they're going to miss their slot. So we just about got away with it, which we didn't feel very clever about because we should have gone with them really. Uh, so that they got chucked off, and they, you know, they got a they got a plane out. I think it was the next day. But we was we went round the pool the next morning, and me and Frenchie felt a bit guilty. And the let they, they turned up. I went up to get the local paper, and we was on the front page of the Sun. <laughs> Sheffield United <laughs> player ejected from jetliner. Uh, I think it was I even. I tell, even you, what, I'll tell uh, you what, Bob. I tell you
1: what brave, brave policemen to be chucking off Billy Whitehurst and that names. They must have, what were they, armed guards, blood and sand. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Ald, the funny thing was, when we, got,
2: when we got the sun in the morning, because I, I spoke to Chrissy Ward that night and he was actually fuming, because they were running through the airport and the paparazzi were trying to chase him to take pictures of him. And the chairman then, Reg really said, just get yourself in a hotel and we'll get you on the next flight tomorrow. Well, Chrissy Wilder said he finally he finally got to his hotel room and thought, "Oh God, I'm safe at last." And then news at ten, come on, duh, 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 duh. and then he saw all the mugshots up on on news at ten. Uh, and Billy Billy had the ump because on the on the pages of the Sun in the morning, you know, like you had your team photo, like where you're all standing up with your arms crossed in your football kit. Billy's one; he was in a suit coming out of an old court case down some steps in Sheffield Court. <laughs> he, he said, yeah, he didn't even get me in my football kit. They got me in my suit coming out of court on another case. So, yeah, that, that stuck with me a little bit. So, yeah, them sort of things. But I say that wouldn't happen these days. But we didn't hurt anybody. We wasn't, you know, we wasn't swearing, wasn't abusive. We just had a drink and, you know, it just got a little bit little bit excitable, really.
0: Yeah, and, and I can imagine with people like Billy in the changing room, there was a few times that maybe you or, or other, certainly younger players, felt like they were walking on eggshells a little bit. And I... I I I want to try and explore a little bit something that Alan and I talk about a lot, which is a sort of blame versus responsibility argument that happens obviously in life a lot. And and within education, it's something that we really try and connect and and get across to our students that, you know, life's what you make it. You know, take responsibility for what you can control rather than point blame in that. How was that that in in a changing room full of Billy Whitehurst's Vinnie Jones as Harry Bassett. Was there room for blame? Was there room for not taking responsibility?
2: Well, you couldn't. Harry didn't always have to point the finger. You know, Harry could come into a dressing room at half time and you are spot on. You would have the lights of or well, I don't think they played together, Vinny and Billy, but Billy or Vinny, you know, they would be doing the team talk. They would be pointing the finger, especially if they you know when Vinny was captain and that was that was his role, you know, he could point the finger. So sometimes Harry just come in and Jeff and they would just stand in the corner, you know, and Carl Bradshaw might have someone up by the throat up against the <laughs> wall, you know. And, uh, it happened, you know, but you let that flow because that's what you want, isn't it? You know, it's controlled aggression. You, you, you know, when you're there for that 90 minutes of that football game well, then three hours, that's got to be done. Once you're away from the football club, it doesn't mean you're going to mix socially with every player that you, you come across. Yeah, we did at a lot of stages. But I've been in football teams where for 90 minutes, you've, you've got to tell people what it is. It doesn't mean you're going to be the best mate after the game and have a drink with them all the time. You, you go away, you're separate lives, you know. So, yeah, the, Billy Billy could do that. You know, Mark Morris could do that. He could point the finger. I used to have, do a fair bit when I when I could, like, you know, Vinny. Uh, even the likes of Dino could get the arm and start pointing the finger if he wasn't getting the service. So... You know, if they weren't getting the service, Dean and the Garner, they let you know about it. You know, you didn't cross the ball. You had a chance to cross it. Why didn't you cross it? Just little things like that. It's got to be said. Then it's out in the open and nobody, nobody needs to hide, do they? You know, you don't want people saying, oh, go in the toilet. Oh, he doesn't cross the ball for me. Get it out there. You know, and then you're, in a, you're in a working environment for that 90 minutes for to get, a, to get a result. And that's what it's all about at the end of the day is getting three points. And then if you want to fall out afterwards and punch the shit out of each other, then so be it. But how, the important,
0: result, uh, how important is honesty, Bob, in, in an environment like that? And then also, you know, oh, y- you, you've took on coaching since then and working with youngsters. You've, you've done it in, in, in a very different way, being a driving instructor and coaching people through that. How important is being honest with the people you're working with?
2: Paramount. Absolutely paramount. As a coach, when I got into coaching or even when in some teams I played in, you could smell and feel the poison if there was a little bit of a poison group about and once you get a bit of poison in the dressing room and players if there's any players listening to that they know what i mean by poison you know get a little click two or three players just oh they're not you know they might not be in the team so they try and suck everybody else into it so we didn't have we didn't i can't remember much poison at sheffield united when i was in that group of players because everybody knew exactly how everybody was thinking there weren't no clicks and once you do get that, when you get them clips in football clubs in dressing rooms, there's only one result, and that's the manager's going. You know, because players have got so much power these days uh, to managers, and the way the way groups are, the, gr- the way groups go about their business. You know, players have a lot of power. Uh, I'm not saying it's always the right way to coach and manage, ruling by fear, uh, if you want to call it that. But Harry didn't rule by fear. You knew he was the boss, but you knew that. You knew that you could have a pint with him after a game. You know, it was work and play, and that's that's the balance of man management. And I would know that I've seen Chrissie Wilder. and I, I, I speak to him, and I know the way he works. And I expect, and I know the players would think exactly the same about him. They know he's the gaffer, but they know that you know when 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 they're winning and celebrating, he'll be there with them. Uh, and he, he expects the same. If he's struggling now, he needs he needs them players with him now. He doesn't need groups of players going off on, Oh, we're not doing that right, we're not winning games. He needs them to be on side with him. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, I would think they definitely are, knowing that group of players and the way they're still trying to play. So, yeah, there's no hiding places. Get it all out there so everybody knows where they, where they stand.
1: I think you can apply that to any organisation, Bob, as well. It's not just a football club, it's a school, it's a business it's anything, any sort of cliques and poison and you're onto a yeah. loser, aren't you? I, yeah. I'm interested now if, if how you've come out of football, what transferable yeah. skills did you have then from football that you took into your driving instructor business? How, how, and the well, difference is, is, is unbelievable, but give us some similarities between the two.
2: Well, it's, it's like you, you touched on it earlier. It, it is a form of coaching, but it's on a one-to-one basis now rather than a group, than the, than the group session. Uh, so I, you know, it was my wife's idea to be fair. Because once I left Brighton, and, and you sort of sitting around for the phone to go, and you might get another job for a manager that you used to work for. And I worked under a few at Brighton about seven, I think it was. You, you know, that when that phone call doesn't come, you got to start thinking. Well, football's not going to last forever. You know, you're in a bubble when you're in football. And once you're out that bubble, it's quite, it's quite worrying thinking. Oh, what am I going to do? You know, for me. Going back to my childhood and doing an apprenticeship in a factory, that stood me in good stead because I've not been working as a driving instructor all in lockdown for nearly a year now. So I've been out and sort of done some odd jobs for people and helped them out. So I can do that because I'd already had that ground and as an apprentice in a furniture factory. So a lot of players go straight from school, straight into pro football, and that's all they know. So it stood me in good stead. I think on the driving side of it, once I did the training, I think the man management and being a people person, which I like to think I am. My wife said, "You are made for that job," because <laughs> okay. you know every character is different, isn't it? You know every you know whether it's a girl or a boy. You're not only a driving instructor. I'm a bloody counsellor, you know. And, and you, like you say, you, you know, I've as soon as I take on that new person, I find out oh, are they shy? Do they like football? What's their interest? You know. Can I, can I bring the best out of them? Can I swear at them? Are they gonna handle it? You know, and you get to know what, what they're like after about a month, you start to work out what sort of character they are, you know. You know when someone's got a problem and I pull over the side and say, what, what, there's something wrong, you're not, quite, you're not quite yourself today. Might be a young girl, oh, I've got a problem, what's that? I'm pregnant, right, okay. Uh, <laughs> does your boyfriend know? No. <laughs> does your mum and dad know? No right, we have got a bit of a problem here. So we're now sitting there for half an hour. I'm not teaching her to drive, but I'm being a man management and a counsellor because that's what she needs because she's got no one else to go to. Yeah. And I find that really, I find that really, well, not that particular case, but every case is different. Every person's different. They've got a different personality. You know, might be a lad that thinks he can drive and he can't. So that one I've got to, I've got to shut down, you know, and tell him that he's not, you know, he's not Billy, Billy bollocks and thinks he's a driver. So, you know, I ain't got to put my arm around him. I've got to give him a bit of a volleying, you know, to, to make him realise that he's driving a killing machine. So I think that's where it stood me in good stead. And I absolutely love it. it you know, it's the next best thing. And once, you, once you're out of football, which I have been now for sort of five or six years, you start to realise that there is life outside of football. And at first, you don't. When you're in it and you, you're told you've got to retire or you've had the sack at Brighton uh, when I left there as an assistant manager it comes a bit of a shock, you know, and you think, what am I going to do? But now you're out of it. I, I sort of still work down at Brighton Football Club now doing hospitality uh, and media work. And I love it because I can come away and it doesn't affect my, it doesn't affect my, my social life or my, uh, my livelihood. I say my livelihood, I mean, I get paid for it, but my, my driving's my job, but I can shut the door and switch off from it. Where when you're in the game, if we got beat on a Saturday, my wife knows that we're not going out. <laughs> That's the way it is because you're back in Sunday morning, your mind's always going, you know, you don't switch off. So, because it's all about winning football games. If you're not winning football games, it ain't going to happen. So uh, I think I've got a nice balance. I've got a nice balance with it. And, you know, so uh, I I really enjoy it. But you're right, it is being a people's person, man management, and it's a form of coaching and there's an end result. You know, to get someone through their driving test is great. You know, you leave them, you tell them to be safe for the rest of their lives. You've You've taught them a new skill. And then you move on to the next one. So it's, it, you know, I, lo- I love it, I really enjoy
1: it. Yeah, I love that, Bob. It, it's one of our catchphrases from my wife, actually, is time invested in people is never, ever wasted time. And when you're a driving mm-hmm. instructor, that's something that you do on, a, on an individual level every single day and you get the yeah. best from them by making a relationship with them. So that, that's brilliant, Bob. I love how this transfers yeah. those skills across. I tell you yeah. what,
0: <laughs> I tell you what, everybody remembers their driving instructor, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's a big it's yeah, a big part yeah. of your life isn't it learning to drive in England it gives you a yeah. lot of freedom as a youngster and I certainly remember mine really really well yeah. and the banter I used to have with
2: him yeah I do. and I've, I've met some great people you know the parents you know you end up I'll get them involved in it because you know a lot of the kids go home they don't even say they've had a driving lesson or what was it like today but I encourage the parents to get involved as well because they can play a massive part and to be fair in the lockdown when, I, when we had to shut down you know I had a lot of parents ringing me up and saying we can't wait to get back Driving because my child or my, my, my boy or girl is such a different person once they've had a driving lesson. They come home, they're buzzing, they've got a smile on their face, and that gives you a buzz, doesn't it? You know, it's another buzz of yeah. the job. That farming you know, I've, you know, and I, I've I've been part of that, so you know, that makes that makes me proud with the job as well. So, you know, yeah, good man, good. Bob. Good man, Bob. Yeah, yeah. Right,
1: we're going to wind it down now, Bob, with some quick fire questions and. Uh... I'm going to start off. I'm going to change it slightly because it's for you, Bob. And I'm a blade, and I want to hear this. So, your, <laughs> your top three guys from your Sheffield United era, who you want to go out for a meal with now, to just to shoot the talk and reminisce? Who would they be? Your top three? What players or people? Anybody it can be anybody associated with the club.
2: Oh, blimey! God bless him. I'd love, I'd love to go and sit and have a meal with Derek Dooley again. Yeah. He was, you know, that man was just, yeah. He was, it was, it was like Harry, really. It was just, it was just amazing, and I never forget the story with Derek because they'd offered me another contract, and I I went and knocked on his door, uh, and I opened the door, and he said, "There's, what do you want? There's no more money. That, that's it." And I said, "No, Derek, I've just come to thank you for giving me another contract at Sheffield United," and he started crying, and he he said. A, he said, and he did. He started crying. He welled up, and he said, "I've never had a professional footballer come to me and say thank you for a contract, but that's oh, yeah. that's that's what it meant to me." So I'd love to just. We we used to go to is it El Cerrito? a little restaurant, It's not yeah. down there. I think on the corner. We used to go in there yeah. and have a bottle of by me and me Derek Dooley and Derek French. You know, sit and have a pasta and a bottle of wine. So definitely Derek Dooley. Uh, I would I would like I would like to sort of meet up with well all of them really, but. Uh, Brian Dean, I mean, I don't know what it is, but every time I've been on holiday in certain places without knowing, even up to this day, we end up going to the same places and he thinks I'm stalking him. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was leaning out this villa in in America and he comes strolling through this complex. And I said, you know, oh, and, and then where else was it? I think my bay, we bumped into each other, America. Uh, there was a couple He's of others. He's, He's stalking, stalking me, yeah. Uh, but I find, I find Brian really interesting and, uh, and a, a lovely fellow to sit down to, to have a meal with. Uh, Derek Dooley, Brian Dean, uh, friendship, friendship. Well, really, also Joe Elliott from Def Leppard.
1: Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, the second Def Leppard reference in our podcast now, Keith. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah now I'm a good. I'm good friends with Joe Elliott, which which was quite another quite strange one. Really, I'll tell you quickly. Before I even came to Sheffield United, back in the 80s, I, was, I became a Def Leppard fan and they came over from America and they played at the Oval, and We went to see him, me and my mates and they had all Union Jacks on and we was really into them. And then I came to Sheffield United not knowing anything about him football-wise. And after one game, uh, God bless him, Dave Kilner, who was the, the, you know, the presenter, he said, oh, Joe Elliott read your profile and he knows you like Def Leppard. He wants to come and meet you. And I went, wants to come and meet me? <laughs> Joe Elliott? He went, yeah. So Joe Elliott came into the, to the players lounge and we struck up a friendship and uh, he put me on his mailing list. And I had all these box sets and everything coming from Def Leppard, all this memorabilia. And we really, we really hit it off me and Joe. And uh, in fact, when I first got married, I invited him to my wedding and he flew out. He drove over from Ireland and he, I got him in a hotel uh, where all the Sheffield United lads were staying. And uh, I went down to see him the night before my wedding. Uh, and he presented me with a, a platinum disc for one of their albums, all framed as a wedding present. And then he came to my wedding. He said, What do I have to wear, Bob? I said, You're a fucking rock star, Joe. You can wear what you want, mate. <laughs> so uh he turned up, he turned up in his attire and he had a he had a good drink and everything. And we we went back to the hotel and uh there was a piano in the reception. Uh and he started he got on it, and a few of the players were around it, and he was playing a few songs, and and uh Jobsworth come over, security man come over and says, "Excuse me, so you can't play that piano." And he turned and he said, "If it was fucking Elton John, you'd let him now. Fuck off." We've <laughs> <laughs> uh, done about, he'd done about an half hour set. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, so I've, I've you know I've been I've been all over the world following Def Leppard, and you know Joe's invited me all around the world and uh, to see him when they're touring. So yeah, still speak to Joe. So I'd love to sit down and Joe because you never get the time because they're always working. So. Uh, yeah, great, great lad. Very passionate about his football club. Uh, so yeah, that's probably probably my top three. Oh, uh, Last year, tell us who's the
0: most uh, physical player is you've you faced as a, as an opponent. Who's the toughest, most physical
2: player you played against?
1: Who's the artist? Come on, who's the artist? Yeah, the who's best. the
2: artist? That's the oh, one. I would say Mark Hughes. Mark Hughes. As a, when I played centre half, we we played him in the cup. Uh, my brother-in-law, who was an ex-professional at Watford, Ian Bolton, and he played centre-half, he said, you've got to watch you, because he's going to stamp on your toes, he's, he's going to grab your bollocks, he's going to pinch you, he's going to elbow you in the ribs when you're marking him at corners. Don't get too tight to him because he'll want to spin you. I mean, he had, he had legs, he had thighs like that, Mark was absolutely massive. So, it, I'll say he was, as a centre-forward, he was probably the toughest. Uh, midfield-wise, the clash is against Vinny, really. Uh, you know, he's he's a he's a hard player. And I mean really, really hard. I don't know if you remember the game where Harry said, I want you to get into Peter Reed against Man City away. <laughs> got sent uh, off after back. two minutes. Yeah. And he, he went he, we kicked off and he, he two-footed Peter Reed and got sent off. And Harry said, I told you, you know, I told you to get into him, not fucking get get sent off, just get into him. So uh <laughs> yeah, he, he, he was tough, but uh, he, he he always he, he always aches the game against against Leeds United at Bramble Lane, where I had I ended up getting man of the match and got the champagne. And he was it was building the news of the world the day before macho mates, because we was mates and it was going to be the big clash at Bramble Lane, 30 odd thousand. And I, I got the champagne and I kept texting him about it. Uh, and he wasn't very happy, you know, you weren't man of the match. Well I've got I've got the I've got the champagne now uh, Vinny to, to prove it. It's on my sideboard now I've got the champagne but i let my guard down because about a month later we played away at elum road towards the end of the season and he managed to get into the get into the dressing room before we turned up and he cut all my kit up and he cut all my kit up when it was hanging up on the on the clothes on the peg and he put deep beat in my slip so when i put my slip on my bollocks were on fire so and he cut all my laces in my boots so he got his own back uh, so yeah so my, my kit was in bits on the on the bench and my boots were in bits and i had uh, deep beat in my slip so uh, that was the type, type of bloke he was you know good lad so uh, yeah Vinny he, he was tough he was tough uh, trying to think of Graham Souness I played against Graham Souness he was yeah he was one Steve McMahon uh, but Shepherd United days Mark Hughes when we played United he, he was tough uh, tough player very tough quality Bob listen it's been uh,
0: brilliant to speak to you um, really appreciate your honesty it. and your uh, your stories are fantastic. Love them. Love hearing. Uh, love hearing you speak and, and and tell us a little bit about that Blade Squad from the early nineties and some of the names you mentioned there and their leadership. Wilder Bassett, Vinnie Jones. I'm sure a lot of our listeners can connect with. So thanks a lot for your time, Bob. hugely appreciated.
2: Well, I hear you mentioned you can always give me book to mention because that's still going strong and that's something that I'm really proud of and you know the book because. You know, it's. I think people, and you probably read some of it. It's not yeah. like your modern-day footballer about how many houses you got, or how much money you got. It's what it was like to, you know, football. You know, can play a big part in your life. You know, going through depression. You know, getting divorced, not having any money, uh, etc. You know, how you know how are you going to keep earning to pay your mortgage? So I think it's it's more of a, a football life story rather than a documentary about you know this is what I've got. It's, it's a real-life story, so we're, I'm very, very proud of it. And, uh, you know, it, it tells a nice story. So I'm glad you got it, boys. And uh, Yeah, we are. Enjoy, yeah.
0: Yeah, that was a gift from my uncle, actually, last Christmas. Was it? It was, yeah. So the book's called Who Are? Can you tell our, our listeners where they can find that or, or, or who published it? Yeah, so well, we can give it a quick search.
2: It, it, yeah, you can still get it in the club shop at Sheffield United. It's still ticking on nicely. I, I went up there when we first when it first got done. Yeah. Uh, Greville Greville Walkman, who's a big Brentford fan, rang me up one day and said, "Oh, I want I want to do a story about it. And I thought, "Story about me? There's not much of a story there." He said, "Well, you come from non-league, you know. You you, you ended up playing in the first division. You got you went to Sheffield United late in your career. You was club captain there. You've been assistant manager. You've been a coach. You've been at three uh, three different football clubs. It, it, we think it, I think it'd make a nice story. So we went for it, and it, it took about 18 months to do." Uh, well, I went up to London and sat down a bit like we are now, really just stuck a dictaphone in front of me and asked me stories. And then he'd done the bit of putting it all together. So uh, we were really glad the way it come together. So we, we went and done a few signing sessions up at, at Smith's and GT Sports in Sheffield and a couple in the club shop. And it, it went really, you know, went much more. I wasn't doing it to make any money. I did it because it's something nice to keep. And my dad would have been proud of it to you know, have the story in book form. It's all there. So uh, so you can still get it at the club shop. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. So, uh, you know, I still get your tweet. Can you send me a book signed and things like that? So it's, it's still out there. It's ticking along nicely. So I'm still getting a few royalties. I can pay a few bills. So okay. it's, it's going along nicely. But yeah, I'm really proud of it. It sits, in, sits on the unit light and you think, blimey, you know, you, there's your story there. And like now and again, I do get it out and just have a browse through and, and it brings it all back. So, uh, yeah, it's really, really, really proud of it.
0: Good, good man, and so you should be. And uh, like you say, seeing that on the on a bookshelf must be a little bit surreal at times. Your your life in. Well, yeah. it
2: was. Yeah, it was a bit. It was a bit difficult at first because when I was, because I was at Brighton when I did it, and we were looking for the cover of the book, which you have seen in the picture. Yeah. And I chose that picture, and Brighton, Brighton. I didn't know whether Brighton was going to say, "Why are you, why are you wearing red and white? You know, why can't you have one of each?" And but that that photo particularly was my first game in the first division against Liverpool. And there was a break in play and I turned to the side while someone was getting treated and I spotted my dad in the crowd. So that picture on the front of that book is me smiling at my dad. And that makes me very, very, very happy. Uh, and as for who are, well, it had to be, didn't it? You know, it, we kept thinking about a name, you know, from a uh, factory floor to football pitch or things like that. And I just said, it's just got to be who are the Bob Booker story, plain and simple. So, uh, the, yeah, the, the picture on the back was the one that they was going to put on, but my wife said I looked like a porn star, so we changed that. Uh, <laughs> so we, we went for the one looking at me dad which I think is quite, quite, uh, quite nice to look at. So that's how it happened. Yeah,
0: certainly is really And Thanks a lot for your time, Bob. Thoroughly appreciate it. No,
2: been, been good, lads, and uh, I envy you a little bit out there in your lovely parts of the world in the sunshine, twenty-five degrees. Bloody yeah, hell, it's about six here. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, it's just started
0: absolutely hammering it down now for that bright sunshine you saw earlier. That's the other side of living in tropical climes Um
2: uh, it, it is quite stunning. You can just see out the back, look, you can see the fields. Oh, oh, quite beautiful.
0: beautiful.
2: Yeah. But it's quite fresh out there. But uh now you keep up the good work, you guys. You're doing a great job, especially that far away. So uh really appreciate you getting in contact with me and it's, it's been a pleasure. So anything in the future, just give us a call and you know it's really nice to reminisce and uh you know keep keep it going. So Top man, Thank
0: very much. Top lives. Cheers, Bob. Top man. Cheers, guys, man. search Infinite Leaders Live on YouTube and IGTV. We're on all popular podcast platforms as well, and you can find us, as ever, at theinfinitelearners.com. Please press review, uh, press subscribe, leave a review, um, and let us know if you're enjoying our pods. Uh, take it easy, guys. See you next time.